Welcome to the AWB Podcast, the official podcast of the Association of Washington Business. In this episode, Vice President of Government Affairs Gary Chandler and his GA team look back on the 2018 legislative session and talk about what passed, what didn't, and what work lies ahead in 2019. Good morning. Thank you all for uh, joining us this morning for our post-mortem or post-session uh, wrap-up of the legislative session we just got out of. Um, just a couple of statistics if you uh, want some of those. The 60-day session started January the 9th. It ended on March the – or started on January the 9th, ended on March the 8th, and they got done on time. It's the first time since 2014 – that in a short session they got done on time. There was looking right towards the last that they probably wouldn't make it, but they finally got it done and were able to get out on time. There were 763 new pieces of legislation this year introduced in the House, but that's also not counting for the bills that didn't make it this previous year. And in the Senate, they introduced 647 new pieces of legislation the House passed out 165 to the governor's desk, and the Senate passed out 143. So we have 308 new pieces of legislation that are going to make each and every one of our lives so much better by having those pieces of legislation pass uh, this year. So a couple things as we head into finish up, we're pulling together all of our vote record stuff. We'll be working on that. Uh, we also now are starting to see legislators decide that they don't want to rerun. I think we're up to about 11 now in uh, the House, uh, the latest one being Representative Cliburne, which kind of surprised everybody that she was going to not run again. Uh, she's worked on transportation issues for a number of years, and she will be sorely missed. The other big surprise through uh, this year of uh, people that were resigning was Minority Leader Dan Christensen. I don't believe a lot of people saw that one coming. Uh, he now has been replaced by J.T. Wilcox. So we're going to have some real changes going on in the House. Normally, the House changes over quite a bit more so than the Senate. Right now, I believe the only one that I know for sure that in the Senate is Senator Bumgardner out of Spokane announced that he's not going to be rerunning again. He's going to be running for the treasurer in Spokane County. So we'll start to see as we get closer to the filing date if any others are going to drop out and decide that they prefer to do uh, something else than be a legislator. So what we thought we would do is once again uh, bring you up to speed as to some of the pieces of legislation that passed or did not pass, some of the things looking forward into 2019, uh, some of the things we'll be doing uh, this summer. And so my first one to speak with you this morning is Mary Catherine. She handles a number of issues, uh, water quality issues, air issues, carbon issues. She took on cannabis issues this year, and also we got involved in some fishing, commercial fishing issues. So I'll have Mary Catherine go over uh, some of her issues. Great. Thank you very much for having me, and thanks, everyone, for being on the webinar this morning. Again, I'm Mary Catherine Meckler. I'm the Government Affairs Director here at AWB for Environmental Policy, um, sometimes cannabis and commercial fishing policy as well. But I'm pretty much just going to go over the environmental policy actions that were taken or not taken this legislative session. Um, there was a lot of momentum, as you know, going into legislative session, trying to preempt a carbon initiative um, that, that will potentially go to the ballot this year um, at the legislative level. And ultimately, it was not adopted. That was Senate Bill 6203. Um, and it ended up dying in Senate rules uh, they, without the votes to pass. There were some favorable portions of 6203 um, for the business community, including an outright repeal of the clean air rule, um, the statutory exemptions that completely exempt uh, businesses or certain sectors um, from having to, to pay the carbon tax. And then there were credits as well as a rate cap and then sort of a review of, of how the carbon tax was working in the future. Um, we still shared concerns with it throughout session based on the administrative costs that would have been very extensive and prevented those carbon dollars from ever hitting the ground in the form of um, maybe distributed energy projects or 
sequestration projects, et cetera, and actually, you know, reducing carbon. Um, and then there was a, a potential lack of preemption of future duplicative policies that could happen at local levels or even at facility-specific levels, um, or potentially unintended litigation of environmental permits um, that are already being granted. Those are the same issues that we're seeing with the carbon initiative that has been filed. This is Initiative 1631, and it's currently with the Attorney General's Office um, for review of its proposed title and to create a summary of the initiative that would potentially appear on the November 2018 ballot. Um, <clears throat> as far as elements of that initiative, it proposes a, a significantly higher tax rate than what we saw with Senate Bill 6203. Um, there's there's less significantly less oversight and monitoring of performance of the tax. Um, and, and we're not sure whether it will have uh, significant emissions reductions in the state that, that impact because permitted revenue expenditures are much vaster. We don't think that they have that logical nexus necessarily um, to carbon or climate change. So th those could be expenditures supporting a, um, a climate change-related professional development programs at K-12 schools in the state, um, educational tuition wage pension support for displaced workers of fossil fuel-related industries, and then a lot of public health action, both on tribal and non-tribal lands. So uh, it is unclear um, what, what will be the future of this initiative, this carbon tax initiative. Again, it's at the Attorney General's office for, for title review. Um, so, uh, the second one I'll talk about is 6269. This was one of the important environmental bills for Senator Ranker and the governor's office. Um, this was uh, extending the existing oil spill taxes, the per barrel taxes that are paid um, by refineries in Washington state, um, to pipelines. They had been exempt from the original uh, oil train spill that we did in 2015, House Bill 1449. So <clears throat> that was extended to pipelines now and will increase the stringency requirements of planning and preparation at Department of Ecology. Um, House Bill 1144, we were able to defeat. This was one that you probably heard us talk about last year as well, and this would have increased the stringency of our state's emission reduction goals that are in statute. Um, we don't believe that that makes sense right now just because those goals are symbolic. Um, we don't have any tools to meet them, and they are part of the Paris Climate Accord, but Washington State starts from a significantly cleaner baseline than all the other nations participating in the Paris Climate Accord. So us getting that additional you know, 20% reduction is significantly more difficult and costly than it would be for the other nations participating. Um, then there were several Energy Independence Act bills. So um, as you know, this was passed via 937 initiative in 2006, and it will be sunsetting in 2020. It's a, a, a renewable installation requirement at, acting as a stimulus for solar and wind in our state. Um, and again, it will be sunsetting. So while they weren't able to get those bills through this session, we do expect that to be um, the liveliest conversation about environmental policy next year. A um, couple of transportation-related environment bills. I think Mike will probably talk about the low-carbon fuel standard as well. Um, but the low-carbon fuel standard, House Bill 2338, we were able to defeat as well. Um, there are a lot of issues with LCFS that's happening in California right now, and we'll actually see those play out this year. So it was a prudent step for the, the legislature to put down 2338 until we can sort of witness what's going to happen with California's economy as a result of that full implementation happening this year. Um, similarly, 2328 in the House was, uh, was going to mandate that we adopt California's zero emission vehicle statute, so which we're uh, fuel and technology neutral at, in Washington State or at AWB, um, but we haven't found in California that that mandate has produced um, significant consumer uptake just because the refueling rate for electric vehicles requires significant infrastructure and incentives advance advancement um, before you'll see that consumer convenience uptake. So the, the, the mandate on manufacturers doesn't really make as much sense as sort of targeting consumers. Um, so that one was also defeated. You probably heard quite a bit of discussion around the net pens and marbled murelet, um, which are habitat and water quality related bills. As you know, there was a net pen escape, um, a failure last August. And so they eventually, there were several bills in the House and Senate, and eventually struck um, Senator Ranker's bill 6086 onto Senator Bl or, uh, Representative Blake's bill 2957. And what that does is it bans the the facility from operating that is operating those net pens from operating past the life of their current water quality permits um, in the next five years. 
this is kind of an unprecedented thing. I mean, it, it has happened in other states, but in Washington state, we haven't seen the, the legislature shut down a, an, an entire industry. And that precedent for rural jobs in Washington state in manufacturing um, that does involve environmental permitting is um, is concerning for sure. And then the Marbled Murillette bills are another Endangered Species Act bill um, that, that requires Department of Natural Resources and the Board of Natural Resources to submit a habitat conservation plan to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, encumbering a lot of the state's public trust lands. And this places um, several of our rural communities and potentially bankrupts five counties um, because they won't be able to receive the tax revenue from working, uh, from doing industrial forestry activities on those public trust lands. Um, finally, you, you probably heard me talk about the polyfluorinated and perfluorinated alkyl substances bills for a very long time, probably the past year, and you're probably not, not wanting to hear about PFAS anymore, but there was significant action on that. Um, in terms of some of the chemistries bills we've managed over the years and that AWB has been involved with over the past decade or so, um, these ones were, were a kind of a more unprecedented step in, in terms that they put a ban in the policy before finding any safer alternatives for food packaging, for example. Um, <clears throat> so that that creates a legal precedent that we're not sure how the federal government will review based on the fact that the existing PFAS chemicals are already permitted um, by um, and found to to meet the no harm standard by the Food and Drug Administration for food packaging. So running afoul of the federal government in this specific way might, might have unintended consequences, and so we definitely oppose that ban authority until we could find a safer alternative and, and do a voluntary industry-based phase-out with consensus. Um, and then the, the firefighting foam bills, last one I'll talk about. As you know, there have been groundwater contamination releases as a result of these um, of, of training exercises on military bases in the state, which is a tragic situation both for public health and for um, economic development in those areas. But the bill that was passed actually wouldn't do anything to change that because they are federally preempted um, by the military and the federal government. So what that they've, de they've done is um, banned them for use by local fire departments, so they will not be able to extinguish um, liquid flammable fires in the future using this chemical um, at, at the local government level. We still will be having to deal with the impact of the federal government continuing to use these substances. So um, with that, I would love if anyone has any questions. So any questions you have, please send them to me. A couple of them, Mary Catherine, can you hit a little bit on the differences between the carbon bill that did make it out of the legislature and the initiative? If I remember right, the carbon bill in the legislature started out at $15. Uh, what's it start out in the initiative? It the the rate of the of the carbon bill uh, Senate Bill sixty two oh three kind of jumped around quite a bit. I think we saw it start at fifteen. It went down to ten at one point. I think it it rested at twelve in the last substitute because we had five or six substitute. I think six drafts of the bill um, throughout the session. the The initiative starts at fifteen um, and will go up two dollars per year um, every every year starting in 2021. Um, and it has no review of the price. Um, it, it doesn't have a cap. So you're looking by 2030. Oh, and it also um, requires to be adjusted for inflation. So if you use a 3% a consumer price index inflation value, you end up with about 43 cents more per gallon that we'd be paying at the pump um, by year 2030. So it is a significantly higher rate. So it would basically start up somewhere between 13 to 15 cents at the gas pump and then increase with inflation in $2 a year. So roughly two to three cents every year you would see carbon tax go up at the pump. And the concern is when it's going at the pump, that's where we also get our gas tax money for roads and stuff. This will be another uh, cost upwards of 43 cents by 2030 of which you will be paying at the pump of which none of that is going to come back to do any uh, thing for the roads. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the I think the the revenue dispersals from the carbon tax initiative are wide ranging. They're essentially infinite um, in their in their spending permissions. There are only a couple requirements where they do have to send the money, and that's on on vulnerable population um, revenue dispersal overlays. It, um, as far as having to spend the money on roads, for example, that we would see with our other gas tax, um, that none of those uh, requirements will are in this carbon initiative language that we're looking at right now. Okay, and then jump over to the Merled issue. Um, we know for rural jobs back with the spotted owl, it had a major, major effect on rural America. And we see way less mills than we did back before the spotted owl. 
Does the Merlet, does it seem to have or could have similar impact uh, depending on how this goes? Mm-hmm. So the Merlet is, um, is a threatened species in Washington State. And uh, in 1997, when they were rewriting the Habitat Conservation Plan, the Board of Natural Resources was submitting a new Habitat Conservation Plan um, to U.S. Fish. They were looking at both the spotted owl and the murrelet, but they said we don't really have enough science about where the murrelet's habitat is, so we'll hold off on doing on encumbering those habitat lands. Um, and so they finished doing that work, the scientific analysis last October, and have pursued a route to encumber um, hundreds of thousands of new acres of public trust lands. And the reason that impacts both local governments as well as state schools is those the revenues from doing that forestry work, um, which does happen in the private sector. Uh, those are used, some are, are set aside for the local governments in those communities, so the, that's for public safety and schools um, or just local government infrastructure like roads. Um, and then the, the other portion of that is predominantly used f- towards the common schools account, which is, supports K-12 capital construction. Um, so there is a significant impact both to the public and private sectors when we encumber these lands for habitat. And it is, I mean, I think the legislators went on for about an hour and a half arguing about this on the floor, wanting to know exactly what the economic impact would be um, of this policy and um, and comparing it exactly to spotted owl okay so more of that to come yet mm-hmm. and then the last question I have for you for your favorite subject PFAS, <laughs> yeah. PFAS? Um, the fire retardant mm-hmm. and military will be able to still continue to use it That's of which we're seeing some of the water contaminants come from the military bases yes. On the private side, outside of the military bases, they will not be able to use the same type of foam. Is there a replacement for it that they're looking for right now that will take the place of that? It may not be as as good, but it will be some type of foam. There are others. The only area where we've seen this contamination occur that has not been located on federal property is um, at the Fire Training Academy out in the North Bend area. Um, so that's one instance where they will will um, n- not be able to use this anymore. But you know, importantly, the manufacturers of these chemicals um, would not suggest and do not suggest that they be used for training purposes ever to begin with. Some of the issues is that they were expensive, so they'd be getting um, you know stockpiles, legacy stockpiles of some of the more um, the chemistries that had already been phased out that were more contaminating. They'd be getting those at the end of their shelf stable life from. Um, from other public entities that had to, because they are required to be used in what is called military spec areas, such as airports. Um, and so that the local governments would purchase them for training use, and then there would be contamination from that. But but North Bend and sort of the Issaquah area is the only one that's not on federal grounds that, that uh, experiences contamination. So it will not, the bills that we see right now, they might prevent future contamination, although some of the, the legacy contaminants that were um, especially persistent and bioaccumulative are still available out there in stockpiles, which is one of the things that we were discussing with the chemical action plan of which we've been taking part of. Um, but the the mov- moving forward, they will have some alternatives. Um, it's just that that's not where we're seeing the contamination occur. It, it will still be on the federal the areas when we need to figure out a better way to remediate that. None, nothing in the bill that we saw this year would help us do that. Okay. All right. So there's no questions for you. So you did an excellent job. Thank Thank you. you. It's great to have Mary Catherine with us. Next is uh, Bob Battles. Uh, Bob does employment law uh, and labor law. Uh, He also has worked very hard on uh, rulemaking for the minimum wage, sick leave, and also on paid family leave as it's going on right now. So, Bob. Great. Uh, thank you, Gary. Uh, we had a, a yet another interesting session this year with uh, employment law issues. It, it's it's never boring. Uh, I'm going to highlight some of the, the big ones that I think passed and the ones that uh, uh, I think are going to be coming back. Uh, the first one I think I, a lot of you folks have heard about probably is the pay equity bill. Uh, this is uh, House Bill uh, 1506. Uh, this bill uh, has been... Uh, 
negotiated and being worked on for the last about four years. Representative Sen has been a primary individual involved on it. Uh, it ultimately did pass. There was a lot of uh, issues. One of the major concerns we still have with this bill is that uh, it does not have uh, a preemption or a single statewide uh, regulatory process. Uh, while uh, everyone can support uh, and, and believes in the pay equity, the issue comes is now we look like we could end up having a patchwork. So this is one of the concerns, and that was one of the biggest holdups in that bill. Continues to be a concern for uh, business community and, uh, and the, uh, the private sector. The next uh, bill that I think uh, uh, is uh, important to talk about is uh, the Fair Chance Act, or commonly known as the Ban the Box. Uh, there has been a statewide Ban the Box uh, that was uh, passed this year. Uh, this is uh, some of you folks that are dealing with this in Seattle. This is not the same one as Seattle. Uh, this is one where uh, you will uh, not be able to ask about uh, previous convictions until after the application process. So you cannot put it on the box. You cannot put it on the application. You can't uh, ask about it, but you can ask before the initial uh, interview. So uh, this one is one of those 90-day bills, which means that uh, 90 days from the ending of the, the session, as uh, Gary mentioned here uh, just a week ago or so, uh, will come in, uh, in place. So uh, if you haven't already looked at your applications, this is something you need to be looking at now. Uh, feel free to give us a call if you have some questions on that. Uh, several anti-harassment bills. Uh, this was not a surprise that we were going to see some of these bills. Several anti-harassment bills uh, did move through the legislature this year. Uh, Senate Bill 5996, which is a non-disclosure agreements, could not be used uh, prior to employment uh, for any kind of uh, sexual harassment uh, claims. Uh, they, uh, there was a huge push actually back by the advocates of this, uh, asking though that uh, non-disclosure agreements should be able to be allowed in the, in the process of settling these types of cases because even the, some of the victims uh, wanted to have that ability. But uh, that, that passed. 6313 passed. Uh, this is a, would ban mandatory arbitration in uh, uh, any kind of discrimination claim. Uh, it started off as a sexual harassment and uh, uh, assault uh, bill, but it got expanded to any kind of discrimination. This was a major concern uh, because it actually probably violates the Federal Arbitration Act. Uh, so uh, I would expect to see this challenge down the road, but it did pass. The other one, uh, a bill that uh, we supported, which, uh, which was uh, 6471, which is on the model policies uh, to work with uh, uh, the legislature, stakeholders, and agencies to develop model policies where employers can uh, adopt these as, as potential ways of addressing the, the harassment type issues. Uh, the biggest uh, question we had on there was making sure that these become model policies and not minimum requirements. And so we will be uh, sitting at the table and, and, part, and I will be put stuff out to folks as we talk about these in development. Uh, Non-compete agreements. We talked about non-compete agreements. Uh, there uh, was a bill that moved all the way to the House floor but uh, failed to move, actually. Uh, I would expect to see uh, non-compete agreements to come back. Uh, the big concern we have with not the, what's happening with non-compete agreements is that the uh, there has been somehow become uh, the minimum requirement or, so to say, the minimum uh uh, situation was $100,000. You can't, under $100,000, you can't have a non-compete. This uh, doesn't seem to make sense yeah, because... $100,000 in wages? $100,000 in wages, you couldn't have a non-compete. Uh, uh, we understand why these came, uh, some bad facts out there uh, regarding, you know, delivery drivers and non-competes, but uh, these are still an important tool and we're still pushing. We will expect to see this back. Uh, there were some workers' comp bills. Uh, they are definitely trying to expand some of the coverage areas in especially the mental health, but more in the in uh, mental health claims that weren't related to industrial injuries. Uh, this is a concern, and we will continue to address this, but right now they're they're dealing with just certain sectors. Uh, mandatory arbitration uh, also uh, passed. This is a bill that uh, raised a mandatory arbitration to any claim that has $100,000 uh, or less uh, as, a, as the amount in dispute. Uh, the concern we have with this from especially businesses are that you have a uh, situation where it becomes much more complex and what we end up doing is actually just having multiple stages of litigation as opposed to trying to get this resolved at the, at the over level. A few uh, 
digital and tech bills. Uh, there was uh, the right to repair bill that didn't move. This was the bill I talked about earlier on regarding uh, uh, them asking or, or the state trying to require folks to basically share all of their uh, proprietary information to allow folks to come in and repair a product and uh, ignore some of the sort of the security and that was a concern. We did see some public disclosure bills and I think that those are going to be interesting and in, in addressing on how uh, uh, money is uh, raised in elections as we come in this election year so we need to consider those. The last I want to just talk about real quickly is exactly what you mentioned uh, Gary is that there's a lot of agency rulemaking going on right now and while this is the legislative wrap-up I think it's always important to remember we have rulemaking continuing through this process uh, three major areas that were we just had the paid safe and sick leave so if you have not implemented that you're in March now and that you have to actually start uh, providing that to your employees uh, that are covered under the minimum wage act so if you haven't done that you want to get on that we are in the middle stop you there because Bob you put on two or three uh, webinars haven't you on uh, safe and sick leave we have we've had several webinars on safe and sick leave we have some one pagers on it or issue briefs uh, so if folks need that we're happy to provide that um, the uh, so yes uh, in addition we've done some webinars and have a lot of issue briefs on the paid family leave uh, rulemaking uh, this rulemaking is ongoing and it's going to be really a two-year process uh, but some rules are actually going to go in place here in June uh, because uh, there are two major uh, milestones in in the paid family leave uh, is uh, January 1st, 2019, when you must start collecting premiums or have your uh, waived program, you know, your, your basically your self-insured program in place, uh, and in 2020, when those benefits can start uh, being taken. Uh, we uh, have sit on the uh, advisory committee and we are working with uh, a lot of uh, members. We actually have employment security coming here to talk about this rulemaking process. This is going to be one that, you know, as critical as the, st uh, the statute was, the rulemaking on this one is just as important because there's a lot of clarifications. The last thing that we've just been told about uh, and they're going to start rulemaking on is the overtime. Uh, the state uh, has decided at, at, at the request of uh, two legislators, uh, Senator uh, Kaiser and Representative Sells, um, have asked the state to look at uh, the overtime rules and bring them up to uh, some of the federal requirements, but also uh, we believe in anticipation, uh, we, would, we would expect that they're going to probably push for some of those same overtime rules that didn't pass or failed to move that started from the Obama administration onto the Trump administration. So uh, that's more to come and that rulemaking process is actually going to be starting here in the next month as well. So do you think the safe and sick leave of what was it, one day for, or one hour, one hour for every 40, 40 hours? Yeah. Is that going to link up in some way, make it, or is it going to still be complex between the safe and sick leave and the paid family leave? Two separate uh, uh, laws and cover two separate issues. Uh, the uh, safe and sick leave, uh, you know, you would address that. That's sort of the immediate, I've got a cold, I've got a child that's sick, although, and, and really short-term kind of complex. Uh, the long-term paid family and medical leave uh, isn't for the cold. It, it, you know, it may be for the child that has to be out uh, of school for some reasons, but uh, there are some uh, <clears throat> ways that they might get used in conjunction, but they are really two separate things, cover separate issues. Any questions for Bob? No questions coming through so far. Thank you. Did an excellent job. Thank you, Bob. Next is our newbie, um, Clay Hill. This is his first year with us, and um, he kicked right off and has done a fantastic job taking over the tax and fiscal issues, capital budget, B&O, and all of those money issues. So, Clay, welcome. Thanks, Gary. Um, so what I want to talk about to recap this session is a brief overview of the supplemental budget. I want to talk about the new tax proposals um, that didn't pass but were significant and gained some traction and passed out of committee. Um, I want to talk about the property tax cut and manufacturing uh, B&O tax relief. So by way of overview, this is a supplemental budget year. And really what that's about is making a billion dollar adjustment to a $44 billion budget. So that's what happened this year. We had uh, last year a biennial operating budget that passed that was gonna spend $43.7 billion. 
And uh, after this uh, supplemental uh, operating budget passed, that's been revised upwards to $44.7 billion. The new supplemental budget um, spends that money without having to uh, impose any, no, any new taxes. And it, in fact, it, it uh, affords us $400 million in property tax relief spread over to biennium. And um, finally, it, it does something that's kind of new in our history uh, since we've had the budget stabilization uh, account. What it does is it, it says money that normally would go to the budget stabilization account is going to get diverted into the education legacy uh, trust account and not sit there in the general fund. And as a result, it doesn't go to the budget stabilization account. And um, so we'll have to see what that portends for the future of the budget stabilization account. Um, so let's talk about the tax proposals that didn't pass this year. There was, uh, as we started the year, uh, the governor had proposed in his, in his uh, supplemental budget uh, carbon taxes. And then the House majority, uh, the Democrats, they proposed a capital gains tax. And um, neither of those ended up passing this year. The House also proposed a 6% surcharge on the BNO that they wanted to uh, use to fund uh, tax relief on business taxes for the smallest of businesses, those grossing $250,000 a year or less. That made it out of uh, the House Finance Committee, but didn't pass. Um, vapor taxes, 60% tax on vapor products and e-liquids for e-cigarettes was proposed and passed out of committee but didn't um, make it to the governor's desk. Um, other taxes, uh, we saw the data tax bill. There's a, a bill out there that proposes to have a new uh, tax regime for sales of personal information um, by companies who are uh, commonly called data brokers. And that bill uh, got some traction again this year, passed initially out of a policy committee, uh, but was killed in House appropriations. Um, so those are the new taxes. The Senate, the Senate had a bill, 6609, that had about seven or eight different types of new tax increases that was proposed. Um, these would include uh, limiting the trade-in exclusion, ending the non-resident sales tax exemption, repealing a sales tax exemption on agricultural fertilizer, and uh, imposing the graduated real estate excise tax. It also would have reduced the estate tax threshold from where it is now, about $2.1 million to $1 million. So uh, that bill was proposed in February and didn't really even get a hearing. Um, so property tax relief. 6614 was the bill this year that reduced the property tax rate for one year. That's in 2019 from $2.70 per thousand to $2.40 per thousand. So 30, 30 cents per thousand on uh, a 500,000 median home, that's $150 in tax relief. Um, manufacturing B&O taxes. Uh, obviously, it was a priority for AWB coming into this session to try to restore the tax relief that passed in a bipartisan fashion last year, but was vetoed by the governor. We had four bills on that topic. Uh, one from each corner, you know, House Republicans, House Democrats, uh, Senate Republicans, Senate Democrats all had a bill introduced on this topic, and there were more than 38 co-sponsors of those bills. One bill got a, a hearing, and that was Senator Chapman's bill, um, 2992, and that bill would have provided manufacturing tax relief, um, reducing by 40% over six years the uh, tax rate for manufacturers but it would have applied to those in eligible areas defined to be those in uh, 30 of our 39 counties, um, the least populous uh, counties in, in the state. So that bill got out of the Finance Committee uh, but did not make it to the floor for a vote. Um, asked when, the, when the Senate Ways and Means Chair was asked about the failure of manufacturing B&O tax uh, relief to pass this year, uh, she indicated that she heard from a lot of members that they want to consider B&O tax relief for manufacturers in the context of a larger conversation about reform of the B&O tax. So I, I expect that's teed up for uh, a biennial budget discussion in 2019. 
Um, there was one other notable uh, bill heard that relates to manu taxes on manufacturers, and that was Senate Bill 5642 by Senator Brown. And this has to do with um, deferring sales tax on construction uh, costs for new facilities. And um, uh, that bill proposed making a current pilot project permanent and allowing all um, all businesses who either improve a facility, expand it, or build a new facility to benefit from a sales tax deferral. And the way the deferral works is you don't have to pay for the, the sales tax on the new facility um, uh, if you're able to earmark it for uh, training the type of workforce that you need for your manufacturing facility. And uh, so it's a neat kind of public-private education partnership and new ways to allow manufacturers to direct some of the taxes they otherwise would pay to train the workforce they need. I expect that to come back in the 2019 session and, and we'll hear more about that. So, a couple of things for you. Back at the stabilization account, the budget stabilization account, is it 1% of the extra revenue that comes in over and above what they have projected? 1% of that goes over in the budget stabilization account, accurate? Mm -hmm. So what they did this 1 year, plus. It's 1%, 1, 1 goes automatically, uh, and then if you have extraordinary revenue growth, which is defined as having more than 133% of the growth uh, compared to an average growth of the last five biennium, you have to be doing extraordinary growth uh, compared to the recent trend line. If you go over that, then three quarters of that amount over gets directed to the budget stabilization account in addition to that first 1%. So they're taking that first 1% is what they decided this year because if you take out the budget budget stabilization account, it takes what, two-thirds vote to do that? Mm -hmm. So knowing three-fifths, three so knowing they can't get that, then that's why they changed and take it before it goes over. So before that 1% moves over to the budget stabilization is where they went in this year and say this year we're taking this amount of money out before it transfers over. Well, I think we're talking about the extraordinary uh, revenue growth. You know, from the, from the growth that was forecast uh, back in the June forecast to the February uh, 2018 forecast, $1.3 in new money came in. And that money um, is not going to... Um, there would have been, I think it was something like 75% um, of that, or $941 million that would have gone otherwise gone to the budget stabilization account is not going there. So our, here we have this extraordinary revenue, and the budget stabilization account is going to have a balance of $1.2 billion, which is the same as it was before we had the new revenue growth. So it's really just, it's about... If you had an extraordinary year with your business or your personal finances and you chose to put none of it to savings, um, that's really what we're talking about. Okay. And then um, the uh, property tax reduction. If there's any questions, please send them in. Otherwise, I'm going to ask you a couple more. The property tax reduction, uh, 30 cents on 1000 So $500,000 home, you said $150. I'm going to realize that in 2019. But in 2019, as we've talked, with the housing values going up the way they are, you probably won't see that $150. That's right. So, you know, your, your um, property taxes are a, uh, are a composite of what your assessed value is and the rate to be applied to that assessed value. And so if, you're, if your house goes up from a $500,000 house to a $550,000 house next year, or from a million-dollar house to uh, a $1,100,000 uh, house value, then you're going to see a lot of that property tax relief that, uh, that the lawmakers think they gave you this year. You're not going to see it reflected in your bill because your assessed value went up. And uh, so that $150 or uh, $300 on the million-dollar home, that may be shrunk down to $60 um, in terms of real relief that you see if you see a 10%, which is not unusual for King County. If things continue the way they are and you see 10% growth in your assessed value, uh, you're going to have a pretty small 
uh, chunk, but it'll be better than it otherwise would have for sure. So as everybody is thinking, I'm going to get a good property tax relief back, probably won't see a whole lot of that in 2019. Well, they might not see a whole lot from what has been done by the legislature this year. But keep in mind, in the previous year, what they did is they said, we're going to cap your local levies at $1.50. So, and, and that starts in 2019. One of the reasons there's a big spike this year is you had an increase in the state uh, portion of your property tax uh, in 2018. And it's not till 2019 that those who have a high local uh, M&O levies uh, get those capped. That was set to phase in later. So in 2019, you might see some more relief on your property taxes, but it'll be a combination of what the state lawmakers did this year in, in lowering for, for 2019 your state portion of your property tax, and also perhaps capping your local M&O levy will result in some additional relief for you. Okay, so you'll probably see more from that capping 150 than you will from this relief. Yeah, about 70% of your school districts are, were, were districts that had um, local levies that were above the capped rate and that'll see reductions. So not everybody gets the benefit of that local reduction. Okay. And then the last question, we worked very hard this year. Uh, it was an issue for AWB. That's part of our bus tour that we took was promoting reducing the B&O tax on manufacturing down to the same rate as the aerospace of 2904. Make it uh, the same across the board for every manufacturing in the state. Unfortunately, our uh, piece of legislation did not move this year, but we did see another segment of um, manufacturers that did get that, and that was with the maritime. Actually, that that bill got stuck in um, Senate Rules Committee, made it so out of Senate Ways and Means, Ways and Means, in the last week of session. That also didn't pass, but I'm glad you brought that up. There was a, a vote, a 97 to 1, off the House floor on a bill that would reduce uh, the the B&O tax rate for manufacturers of a certain type of product, namely qualified vessels, those vessels that participate in a federally managed fishery. They would have seen their tax rate reduced to 2904, same as aerospace, same as uh, uh, certain um, timber processing businesses. Um, and that got huge bipartisan support in the House. It moved through Senate Ways and Means, uh, but didn't make it to the Senate floor. And um, very interesting dynamics on that bill. I mean, it, it's clear that people had an appetite to provide that lower rate because they wanted these um, skilled tradesmen and these businesses to have a historic opportunity to be part of rebuilding and recapitalizing the North Sea fishing fleet that's an, an aging fleet, and there's going to be a lot of turnover in that fleet coming soon. So lawmakers do want to help manufacturers. That one had a much smaller uh, fiscal note uh, than doing manufacturing relief for everybody, and so maybe it was a little bit more right-sized to a supplemental budget year. But ultimately, it, it didn't pass, and um, there were some attempts to amend that bill to uh, see how broad they could make that and see if they could make it apply to more manufacturers, and that seems to have sort of chewed it up at the last minute. Okay. So a question. When will DOR, uh, Department of Revenue, recalibrate or recalculate equalized property tax rates for individual counties based upon the actions of the legislature? Hmm. Well, there is, I think that's a reference to uh, something called the Combined Indicated Ratio Study that happens at the end of each year. It's a long process where the Department of Revenue is in charge of trying to synchronize um, the assessment function that happens at the local level by county assessors. We got 39 different county assessors, and they're in charge of establishing evaluations for the property in their counties. And lo and behold, wouldn't you know it, there are variations among local assessors and practices and methodologies. And at the end of the year, the Department of Revenue tries to rationalize that and gear everybody up to uh, 100%. And um, that process, I think, takes place over a few months at the end of the year. And I haven't heard anything different about it being moved up or adjusted to reflect what, what took place this year. Okay. All right. Good enough. Thank you, Clay. Thank you. Next up is uh, Mike Innes. Mike does uh, transportation, land use, or rural jobs, telecommunication. Um, so, Mike. Thank you, Gary. 
good morning, everybody. Uh, as Gary mentioned, I'm Mike Ennis. i on staff here with AWB. I'm going to talk to you about three issue areas uh, and, and the developments that occurred in those areas during session, uh, transportation, land use, and then our rural jobs effort. Uh, so I'll, I'll begin with transportation. Uh, the legislators did uh, uh, adopt a supplemental transportation budget this year, uh, Senate Bill 6106. Uh, it adds about $800 million in new spending over the previous biennial budget. Uh, and I think for the first time broke the $9 billion barrier um, when you're talking about transportation um, expenditures or a transportation budget. Uh, and it sits right now at $9.3 billion. Uh, the bill uh, f did fund, or the supplemental budget did fund a handful of new projects. Um, it accelerated uh, a handful of connecting Washington projects as well. Uh, it funded development of an RFP to convert three ferries to hybrid electrics, uh, which is interesting. Uh, the, the budget also funded an autonomous vehicle work group. Uh, and then several new studies uh, were funded as well, and we see uh, quite a few studies um, funded in different budgets, and the transportation budget is no different. They include uh, a look at transportation network companies, so Uber and Lyft, uh, for hire and taxi companies, uh, as well as high-speed rail, um, of which we've seen uh, some reports in the news media on high-speed rail over the last couple of days. Uh, there will uh, there is expected to be a shortfall in the transportation budget next biennium. Uh, we experienced about a $60 million revenue shortfall this year, uh, which legislators were able to bridge um, using fund balances from existing funds. Uh, next year, uh, revenue is telling us that the, uh, that the shortfall will be much larger than that, and they will not be able to use fund balances to, uh, to make up the, the whole. So we'll uh, meet with um, uh, agency officials as the year uh, progresses to see what the scope of that shortfall is going to be and exactly how we're going to fund it. Our number one priority at AWB when it comes to the transportation budget is maintaining the commitment to the packages uh, that have passed in the past, the most recent one being Connecting Washington. We want to make sure those projects stay intact on time and on budget. Uh, so we'll be watching those closely. Um, also interesting in transportation are the bills that did not pass. Uh, there were several, several important ones um, or, or ones that lawmakers have spent a lot of time talking about. Uh, the first one is um, changing or amending the toll uh, structure on 405. The express toll lanes on 405 have received a lot of attention over the last couple of years um, and uh, DOT is, has estimated they're not meeting their statutory obligation uh, to performance on 405 with the tolls. So there was some talk about wanting to uh, amend the, the toll structure there. Uh, lawmakers chose not to, to do that this year uh, and no 405 bill was passed. Uh, car tab valuation, uh, also seen a lot of news reports on sound transit and how they calculate car tabs um, for their ST3 program. A lot of talk uh, about passing an ST3 car tab bill this year. Uh, lawmakers in the end were unable to reach an agreement on it and I think the sticking point was whether uh, they wanted to backfill the money that uh, sound transit would have lost um, if, if the bill passed. Um, that the House and Senate could not come to an agreement on whether they backfill those dollars or not. Uh, transportation network company regulations, Uber and Lyft are seeking statewide uh, regulations on transportation network companies. They were unable to get their bill this year, but we do see a, uh, a study uh, within the budget to look at it. So going forward uh, in the longer session year next year, I expect that we'll see another uh, TNC statewide regulation bill. And then a, a little bit of a surprise is the legislature did not pass the sales tax exemption on electric vehicles. This was an existing incentive that expires this year, um, and uh, there was an effort made to extend that sales tax exemption on the purchase of electric vehicles, um, and the legislature was unable to reach an agreement on it, and, and the bill uh, died. I do expect that we would see uh, another effort next session to try to reinstate that incentive next session, so we'll keep an eye on that. And then finally, uh, as Gary mentioned earlier, Representative Cliburn, uh, chair of the House Transportation Committee, did decide to retire this year. Uh, she made the announcement on the floor right after the supplemental budget was, was adopted uh, and really took everyone by surprise. 
Um, Representative Cliburn has been very um, uh, cordial and professional and accessible to the business community when it comes to transportation um, uh, policy. So uh, I, for one, am very sad to see her go. Um, we'll watch to see who the caucus replaces her with. Um, right now, um, my money is on Representative Fye. Um, he seems to be, have a very pragmatic approach to transportation policy in Washington, uh, but we'll see what the caucus leadership decides to do. Uh, land use. Uh, we did not see uh, a lot of land use bills passed this year, uh, which is a good thing because there were a lot of uh, bad ones that were out there. Um, one that the business community has worked on for the last couple of years is State Building Code Council reform. Um, Senate or House Bill 1622. You've probably heard me talk about this um, over the last three years um, as we work toward reaching a, a, an agreement on it, which we were able to do this year. Uh, the bill did pass and the governor, uh, it, it sits on the governor's desk waiting his signature. Uh, the bill uh, does raise fees in three areas uh, re relating to building permits. It creates an architect fee for a building permit of $6.50. Uh, increases the residential building permit fee to $6.50 and then it increases the commercial uh, fee or the commercial uh, building permit fee uh, to $25. Now what's important there is it actually makes the distinction between residential and commercial. In the past you, you would just get one uh, building permit and pay one fee regardless of whether it was residential or commercial. Uh, with this bill, uh, it actually makes the distinction between the two and creates a separate fee structure for it. Um, and in this case, for commercial, you're paying a, a lot more, $25. Uh, in exchange for the fees, we received several um, uh, reforms that our members were looking for uh, for the last several years, really. Um, we needed a, a functioning State Building Code Council. Uh, and if you've ever attended or, or worked with the State Building Code Council in the past, you would understand that um, they were uh, not meeting that need of ours. Uh, they were not uh, very functional. We had a lot of uh, members who had a lot of problems with the State Building Code Council over the last couple of years. So this bill gives us uh, several reforms, including moving the, the, the State Building Code Council under DES, uh, changes and amends some of the uh, membership requirements of the council, uh, and it also funds an, an economist, a full-time economist, that would um, analyze the amendments that the State Building Code pass, uh, Council uh, proposes to see what the impact would be on uh, the, the, the project or, or the, the policy area. Um, that economic analysis is required by law, but the State Building Code Council in the past has not been able to perform the function because they claim they don't have the revenue to do it. Um, so with, with the new fee revenue that they'll receive in the bill, they'll be able to hire a full-time economist to do that analysis. That's something the business community has been asking for for many years. We want to see that, uh, that, that, that the impact of those amendments on, on the industry. So good news there, um, passing the State Building Code Council reform bill, we're very excited about. All right, and then lastly is rural jobs. Um, as you know, we, we were very active on rural jobs last year. We held two summits, came up with a legislative objective or a set of legislative objectives for this year and created a rural jobs task force internal to AWB, made up about 400 of our members um, looking at how we could um, move forward with that agenda. Now, we had a lot of hope coming into session. There is a lot of um, traction and I think a lot of um, uh, conversations from all corners of the legislature and wanting to pursue something uh, to improve uh, the economic development in the rural areas. Um, while we did see a couple of um, good successes, we also um, were disappointed that the legislature did not do more. Um, lawmakers did pass a Hearst bill um, early in session, um, Senate Bill 6091, so we, we were able to get a Hearst fix out of the legislature and that, that's a, uh, that, that was a priority for AWB. Um, there was a workforce bill that I think Amy might talk about um, relating to um, uh, education and high demand fields in the, in the rural areas, uh, 2177, that bill was adopted as well. Uh, both of those were on our uh, uh, rural jobs legislative objectives for this year, so good news. Uh, on the other hand, though, um, as Clay mentioned, the legislature did not pass a B&O tax rate reduction bill, so we were disappointed uh, that that did not occur. And, and then uh, all equally disappointing that uh, we didn't see uh, a bill passed relating to broadband infrastructure. 
cannot have a conversation about rural areas in Washington state without talking about the need for rural broadband. There are between two and four, 200 and 400,000 people in Washington state who do not have access to rural broadband. That creates a digital divide. Uh, and, and, it, and it creates a system of those who have it and those who don't, and those who have it risk being left behind, not only in, in, in employment, but also in education and, and, and just general quality of life. Uh, so there were several broadband bills introduced this year. Um, we were hopeful that uh, at least one of them would pass, worked very hard uh, with both sides of the aisle trying to get that, that through. Um, in the end, the, the Senate and the could, or the House could not agree with the, the Senate version of the bill, and it ended up not going anywhere this year. Uh, so we were disappointed in that. Uh, we will work with our telecom task force here at AWB to come up with uh, a new set of objectives for next year and a new strategy to see if we can get a rural broadband, pass, rural broadband bill passed next session. Um, and then we also, relating to rural jobs, plan to have another rural job summit later this year. Um, we not, haven't finalized a date or a location yet, but uh, be on the lookout for those details um, as they come out. And then I have a Rural Jobs Task Force uh, conference call uh, coming up on March 26th at 11 a.m. Uh, if you're interested in participating in that call, uh, please feel free to reach out and I'll make sure that you get the information on, on how to call in. Okay. Let me go back one question for you on transportation the shortfall that you're looking at maybe next year, is that uh, because of less gas taxes or combination of maybe project costs going up also because of the booming economy? Yeah, and that's a great question. Uh, when I spoke with OFM earlier in the year, um, posed the same question to them. Uh, typically when you see shortfalls, it's, because it's related to, to fuel consumption. Uh, as you can imagine, fuel consumption goes up sometimes and it goes down other times. When it goes down, that translates to less revenue for the state. In this case, however, uh, that's not the reason why uh, we have a, a revenue shortfall in the transportation budget. Uh, OFM officials believe it was a, a result of a faulty assumption that they had built into their budget a couple of years ago. Uh, that's, that's good news insofar as we don't expect the shortfall to last more than this session and the next biennium. Um, they've corrected the assumption. Uh, now we just have to fill the, whole, the budget hole on paper to make sure that the, the revenue um, is, is maintained. Uh, and then you start, should start seeing the, the general increase in revenue as we normally expect in transportation to start going up uh, after, next, after next biennium. Okay, we'll just take the 60 million out of uh their budget, I guess. Okay. <laughs> we could. All right. Thank thanks, you. Mike. Yeah, thanks, Gary. And last but certainly not least, um, Amy is works on health care, on education, um, and just about anything else that I can't find anybody else to do, then Amy will step up to it. But certainly health care and education have been uh, major ones with Amy. Yes, good morning and thank you for joining us. Uh, the 2018 session, healthcare really focused on the opioid crisis, drug transparency pricing, uh, as well as the health insurance market. So just quickly on the drug transparency and pricing, we really did not make any uh, headway on this. It's an extremely difficult issue because at what level are you really looking to uh, make sure that that drug pricing is is put forward and there is more transparency so we'll continue to work with our partners on that issue as we address the uh, the, the issue of health care cost uh, the opioid crisis something we're hearing about consistently throughout the United States not just in Washington but in our state here we see about two people die per day uh, because of an opioid episode so the legislature did attempt to pass legislation to address the issue unfortunately they were not successful however rulemaking is taking place uh, that hopefully they will have some changes made and addressing the issue and AWB will continue to monitor that uh, bills concerning the private insurance market uh, also were a big piece for AWB and that was particularly around the uh, individual market there were several bills introduced to stabilize the individual market uh, big concern for AWB because some of those bills were addressing uh, additional issues out there in the market that would have uh, actually created fewer options for uh, folks. So we continue to promote and support uh, free market options. 
Uh, one bill, though, that did pass to be able to uh, or to stabilize that individual market will provide folks in those regions where an individual product is not available to purchase a healthcare product, healthcare coverage product through either the School Employees Benefit Board or the Public Employees Benefit Board. So we believe this is a good option. Uh, we don't have too many rural counties that have this issue. Again, as Mike was talking about, our rural uh, communities are extremely important excuse me, extremely important to us. And of course, making sure that they have health care coverage in that area is also an issue. Uh, a big piece for us that we, we did try to combat that we were not successful at was the drug take back program. There was in legislation introduced that did pass that will require manufacturers who sell over-the-counter pharmaceuticals in the state of Washington to develop and uh, run a drug take back program. We're looking at this as just another cost on our manufacturing industry, uh, so we're going to continue to try to work with our, our uh, regulators to see how this can happen so that we can safely take back those drugs but not necessarily impose another uh, tax or cost on our manufacturers. So that's it on healthcare, and if you do have any questions um, as I head through education and workforce, please feel free to push those through even on healthcare. So, of course, we've heard about over the last several years the additional investments that are being made, particularly in our K-12 system. Uh, we've had about $4.6 billion uh, invested in the last four years with an estimated about $8.4 billion um, planned throughout 2021. Uh, in 2018, the legislature added about another billion dollars to the K-12 uh, system uh, and additional investments in early learning as well as post-secondary. So going forward, AWB is going to be addressing education beyond McCleary, looking at how we are expending those funds to make sure that what is happening in our early learning, K-12, as well as post-secondary system is really addressing the workforce needs that our businesses have in the state. So on early learning, there was a little over a $6 million investment made in early learning this year. It's providing funding to increase home visitations and child care capacity for homeless families, uh, increasing funding to expand early childhood learning capacity by providing education opportunities for uh, early childhood learning educators, uh, as well as a push to engage the business community in early childhood learning. Uh, AWB will be hosting, in collaboration with the U.S. Chamber and partnership with Thrive, an early childhood learning event on April 17th. We'll be looking at the federal landscape, what does the federal policy arena look like with respect to early childhood learning, as well as what's the uh, lay of the land in the state of Washington, how are we addressing early childhood learning. We have a legislative panel who will be discussing how they've been addressing this issue over the last few years. Then we also have some businesses coming in to talk about how they're investing in early childhood learning for their employees and why they're doing it. Uh, in the K-12 through uh, arena, as I said, we invested about another $1 billion into the K-12 through system. Primarily, that was to fund the salary increases for school employees in the 2018-19 uh, school year. It originally, in last year, in the 2017 bill, uh, the funding for that had been pushed out to the 1920 school year. Uh, the Supreme Court came back and said we, the legislature was still not in compliance. Uh, with respect to the McCleary decision, so the legislature was able to fund that this year. Uh, they're also factoring in regionalization issues where you have cost of living disparity uh, in different school districts. Uh, there's an increase in special education funding and alternative transportation uh, grant program. Uh, it does delay the requirement that districts meet kindergarten through grade three class size uh, until the 1920 school year, not in this next school year. Uh, it also addresses the issue that Bob had talked about earlier on uh, paid sick leave that will be hitting our school districts so well. They need to address that. Um, and then also delays the implementation of the state allocation for professional learning days by one year, and that was for our instructors. Some additional wins in the K-12 arena. We did have some uh, apprenticeship, oppor apprenticeship opportunities for high school students. Uh, OSPI, State Board for Community Technical Education, as well as the uh, Washington State Apprenticeship Council will study additional opportunities for this work-based learning model, something that AWB has been very involved in uh, to provide that practical application of education for our kids to see what those opportunities are out there. Uh, we did have an expansion of career and technical education court courses, uh, providing additional equivalency options for those. Unfortunately, one of our biggest losses for the year, uh, or I would say more a lost opportunity, is that we did not increase funding for career and technical education, uh, something AWB is continuously uh, advocating for. 
So in our post-secondary arena, uh, we did have a little bit of a scare uh, towards the end of the session. We thought we might lose some running start funding. Uh, this is the program that does provide uh, dual credits for high school students, juniors and seniors, who are taking classes at the Community and Technical College. Uh, we're able to protect that, uh, move that forward. Hopefully we will be able to uh, increase some opportunities in that program as we go forward with that. The Opportunity Scholarship received an additional $4.3 million in funding. Uh, and the state need grant received an additional $18.5 million. And as Mike mentioned, uh, there was a bill to increase opportunities in the rural areas to provide more training opportunities for industries that are specific to those rural areas in our state. So as I mentioned earlier, we do have an early childhood learning event on April 17th. So please, if you'd like to register for that, you can go to our website. We also this Wednesday have our annual workforce summit. Uh, we're looking at the apprenticeship models. We're looking at innovative workforce and education models across the state that are successful. We're bringing in some of our uh, STEM high school principals from Aviation High School, Delta High School, and Spokane Valley Tech to talk about how they're teaching our next generation of workforce. We're bringing in some of our businesses who are talking about some of the training models they're establishing within their workplace as well. So really encourage you to uh, attend those. These are some of those issues, particularly the early childhood learning that we are going to be addressing uh, in the 19 legislative session and the next biennium budget. So please, uh, please take a look at those. And I'm happy to answer any questions. So any questions for Amy? I, I think, as Amy said, our two disappointments were no additional funding for CTE and no additional funding for Running Start. But Amy did a great job of continuing putting pressure on the legislature on Running Start. It just seemed like it just kept bouncing back and forth. Where would it wind up? Would we wind up with the right amount of, right amount of money? So we're disappointed we didn't get additional funding, but we'll work on that for next year. But at least we got the Running Start program funded now and uh, ongoing. So... With that, we don't have any questions. Uh, sorry we want we run a little overtime, but I think all the issues that my staff covered are a very important issue for this session. Uh, please, if you have any more questions, give me a call or give one of my staff a call if you would like to do that. If you want us to come out and visit you, uh, come out and speak with your chamber or whatever, give us a call on doing that. Uh, we're willing to uh, come out and do that. One of the things that Amy will be working real hard this summer on is trying to get more people involved in the education committee and also into health care. So you could help us with that in getting us lined up with members that uh, would be willing to participate in both of those committees. So with that, um, that's the wrap-up that we have for the 2018 session. I think overall it was not a bad session. Like I said, it ended on time. Uh, no new revenue. A lot of new revenue talked about, but it was not brought into place. A lot of feed for thought for next year and what 2019 is going to bring to us. Let's continue to hope that the economy in the state of Washington, at least in the central Puget Sound, continues to grow. How do we move that out to the rural areas is still a concern of AWB, that we all participate in the growth that's going on in the state. But certainly, as long as our state continues to grow the way it is, then we're hoping that the legislature will stay within that revenue and not reach out and try to find more revenue uh, from the business community. So with that said, thank you very much. Thank you for your time today. Have any questions, be sure to please get a hold of us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To stay up to date on all issues relevant to employers in Washington State, please click subscribe. We'll talk to you next time.